Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. We're back with another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm very happy to have you with us uh, today. Uh, A lot to talk about in terms of political news, so I want to get right to introducing our panel. Uh, It's Tuesday, which means that AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman is with us. Tamar, I I haven't actually, it's uh, last week we were on tape, so we didn't see you uh, on Tuesday. And it's been two weeks since you uh, hosted the show in my place. And I just want to tell you, you were great. And uh, a lot of our listeners are really, really pleased uh, uh, with uh, the way you handled the show. So thanks. We have to have you do that again sometime. Although I don't plan on ever taking another day off tomorrow. (laughs) Thanks, Bill. It was so much fun. And let me just say, I have such a newfound appreciation for what you do. You make it look so easy. And the number of balls you have to keep in the air to host the show, it's... You know, props to you for doing this every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll still flattery is not going to be the reason you'll come back and host again. But thank you for that. We're also joined today by the newly minted minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives, uh, Representative James Beverly from uh, Macon. Uh, Representative Beverly, you're only a couple weeks now from heading into the next legislative session, and. Um, We're going to certainly want to talk to you about the session as it progresses. But in the meantime, we're glad to have you here today. Thanks for joining us from Macon. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Bill. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Dr. Andra Gillespie is with us as well. You know her, of course, as a a professor of political science at Emory University. She's also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on Race and is uh, now learning uh, some new techniques and recipes in cooking. As you told us, Sandra, over the holidays, you were doing some duck and goose. Very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. You don't want to you don't want to talk any more about your cooking. Oh, I figured we didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll move on. Sam Olins is with us. He, of course, is the former attorney general of the state of Georgia and before that served as the uh, highly respected by both sides chairman of the Cobb County Commission. He's now a partner with Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hey, Bill. I hope you had a great holiday and hope we all have a yeah. great new. Absolutely. Let's let's just all hope for a 2021 that starts giving us all some relief. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Tomorrow, yesterday on the show, uh, we had a conversation with the panel about an effort being made by a Texas uh, conservative organization called True the Vote, which had uh, moved into Georgia and was trying to recruit uh, uh, Republicans in counties across the state claiming that there were as many as close to 400,000 voters whose registration was no longer valid because their postal addresses no longer matched uh, their registration addresses. Democrats said that those are very unreliable uh, measures of where a person is voting, where they live. And we should say that uh, yesterday, 
a federal judge did in fact rule against two counties that had gone along with through the vote, Muskogee County, where there were some 4,000 votes of voters being challenged, and Ben Hill County. Um, but we should add one layer tomorrow, and then I'll let you pick up on this. The judge in question is uh, Leslie Abrams Gardner, the sister of Stacey Abrams, which uh, adds an interesting political wrinkle to the whole thing. Tomorrow. Yeah, we saw a lot of these lawsuits being filed in, in counties across Georgia, and most of them were being rejected by county boards as they were coming through. But but Muskogee County was uh, was interesting because they did end up accepting it, even though the um, the person who filed the lawsuit didn't show up and didn't provide much evidence beyond the initial um, look at this change of address thing that they filed with the the postal service. So if if it would have if it ends up standing at the end of the day, it would require voters to, to file a provisional ballot and then later provide evidence that they indeed live in the area. Um, so it kind of brings it in line with what we saw in a lot of other counties that rejected the suit. Um, but still, it, it, it does create an opening for conservatives that want to attack this decision just because this judge is the, the sister of Stacey Abrams, who is so detested on the right. And um, you know, at this moment in time, that, that just might be enough to sow, sow more doubt into the system. Uh, Sam, you've been paying attention to this uh, case, and you, you said that, in fact, uh, the plaintiff in this case did try to have uh, the, the judge recused, given her relationship to uh, Stacey Abrams, and obviously was unsuccessful in doing that. Look, it would have been better from an appearance of, of impropriety had uh, Stacey's sister not retained the case. Having said that, the law is firmly uh, in favor of uh, keeping those uh, voters on the rolls. Uh, and, and candidly, this seems to be another one of those pieces of, lit of litigation filed without any evidence. Representative Beverly, I, the, we know that in Muskogee County, those those votes voters who were challenged were overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, and in fact, the county voted uh, overwhelmingly for Joe Biden, which does lead to the, uh, the, 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 belief, the possible belief that this, in fact, is voter suppression. I I'm always feel a little cautious about how I use that term uh, because there are legitimate voter challenges out there on occasion. But it's hard not to look at this and wonder about voter suppression, Representative Beverly. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that is is a little disconcerting is that when you lose an election that's this close, that you want to change the rules in the middle of the game. And and it's unfortunate. And it harkens back. I mean, look, you can't live in this country and not think about when you really think about voter suppression and the overworked ways that happened in the 60s and 70s, um, that now it's becoming more covert. And it's, you know, it's starting to become one of those things. It's a, It's the same thing but it's cloaked in a different manner. And so it's not a stone's throw away from imagination that it is voter suppression. And we just, you know, let's get back to doing the business of Georgians and get rid of this foolishness coming from outside agitators. So they can really just do the business of Georgians. And, um, and again, targeting Democratic counties does not bode well for the future. The pendulum always swings back the other way when people start, you know, relying on machinations that don't make sense for anyone involved except the fact that you want to win. So... Hopefully we'll we'll get beyond this. Andra, 
you know, one of the things that I think is also really important is that, you know, in Georgia, you are allowed to challenge somebody, especially if you see somebody voting who you think shouldn't be voting. So, for instance, if you see somebody voting and somehow you're within earshot and you know that they claim an address that doesn't exist anymore or that is obviously vacant. Um, and that perhaps is something that could be revisited. Uh, you know, if it looks like it's being used for intimidation, and I see the possibilities for that. But the idea that you're going to try to rescind registrations without proof that people are, you know, aren't actually, you know, voting in places where they're not registered, it could be that there is just a lag in terms of cleaning up voter rolls legitimately, um, I think is actually something that's really problematic. And so it's the idea of attempting to game the system kind of mid-election cycle. Uh, you know, I agree with Leader Beverly. That's the thing that, that's the most problematic. And you're also insinuating things about people's voter registration that I don't think is actually appropriate at all because these people could have moved, could have sent in the proper notification to be purged from the rolls here in Georgia based on where their new location is. Um, and just the clerical work hasn't caught up yet. And so that's the other part that I find really problematic about this. One other piece of this puzzle is that we're in the middle of a pandemic, and that's upended the lives of a lot of people, as we were talking about even some people on this panel, where, where you know you have adult kids who maybe weren't expecting to move back in with the parents uh, at the beginning of the year who now find themselves at home. And I think a lot of folks don't know how long they're going to be away from their, their residence, but for, for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe they get sick, maybe they're scared of getting sick, maybe economic concerns, maybe they lost their job, they might temporarily be some, somewhere else. And that's another wrinkle in all of this that I think sometimes gets overlooked. So if I can so say one, if, if sure, I can go say, ahead, Sam. So the, the law has firm restraints on making changes within 90 days of an election. The law also requires notice to the voter. This rabid attack on our system for the sake of one person disregards decades of law, disregards fair play. And, you know, if you lose an election, you don't try and change the rules in the process. And I think, you know, when, when Representative Beverly was talking, I mean, let's, candid, let's be candid. He, he, he was very guarded in his statements. The fact of the matter is this is just as bad as what was occurring decades ago with regard to voter suppression. Uh, it's unspeakable. Yeah, Sam, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, we had, and, you know, I don't know what the, the R stands for anymore when it comes to Republicans. It seems like you've been hijacked by the crazies uh, who are really looking at, you know, this election and seeing, looking for competitive advantage. But, I, you know, I appreciate the sensibility that you have, and you're absolutely correct. And, yeah, I am guarded because at a certain point, you, you know, you got to look at this stuff and say, okay, um, we really got to get back. Let's not use this as a distraction. I mean, people people have lost their job through no fault of their own We're in the midst of COVID. You know, I understand that my son came back from Morehouse. He graduated this year. He stayed with me for eight months. It's been interesting to, to have a grown man in my house after being single for so long. But the reality is, is that people's lives have changed right now. We need to deal with what's really happening, the brass tacks of what's happening with the average Georgian who, again, lost their job through no fault of their own, maybe losing their homes that kind of stuff, and to move into this space where the tail is wagging the dog doesn't make much sense anymore. We need to let the grown folks start to talk about real issues that move us forward and not let the people who are on the fringes drive this conversation anymore. Well, as long as we're talking about uh, efforts to, at the very least, dilute the vote, if not suppress it, uh, Representative Beverly, you're going to be faced in the uh, upcoming session 
with uh, a uh, proposal by the Republicans uh, to do away with no excuse absentee voting, something Republicans themselves passed back in 2005, I think. Um, and it was at a time when, of course, it was uh, Republicans were doing that in part uh, because it was their voters who tended to be absentee voters, older voters uh, more specifically. And, and again, you know, this is something brought by the Secretary of State, which the Speaker has already said he's got a lot of interest in. Um, how do you, and then I want Andre to weigh in on it too, but starting with you, Representative Beverly, how do you characterize that effort? What do you make of what's happening with that? Yeah, again, I, I think, you know, in the General Assembly, I've been there 10 years next year, and um, unintended consequences, right? There's a, there's a space where if they go down this road, and they're going to go down this road, we'll be ready to have that fight, and, it, and I think it'll be a, a healthy fight. But if they go down that road, the unintended consequences are the, are the people who, you know, can't get off of work uh, for three hours to vote. Uh, the people in that arc, I call it the northern arc around the, the beltway, the people working downtown who have to get back and what they need to do is, you know, vote early or vote by absentee ballot. When you start thinking about those folk and how they're going to be disaffected by these laws that they pass, I think that you're going to have a different kind of conversation in the next six weeks than we're having right now. Because once people realize, oh, it's me that's affecting and not these other ones, then I think we're going to have a different conversation. And we need to highlight that as Democrats as we go through this debate. So, Andra, I, I raised the question about whether this is voter dilution or voter suppression. How do you look at, at this effort? Um, you know, I view this as suppression because it is an attempt to try to discourage voting. Um, and I actually think that this particular recommendation, like I knew that this General Assembly session was going to be an all-out fight um, with respect to election systems that – uh, Republicans prodded by Donald Trump's antics in this last election cycle were going to, you know, make an issue of signature matching and other types of things, which, you know, are also in the realm of suppression. This one actually strikes me as particularly tone deaf. It's tone deaf for a couple of reasons. In the grand historical sort of thing, uh, cycle, we know that sort of scheduling our elections for one Tuesday um, in November isn't always conducive to everybody's work schedule. Um, you know, there have been recommendations to move, you know, the election to the weekend, so times when people can actually get there. By spacing it out over a number of days, it gives people the opportunity to schedule this at a time that's convenient for them, because not everybody works a nine-to-five where they can get off and be able to sort of go vote, and you know, on, on Tuesday on Election Day, despite the efforts to do that. The other thing that, that's actually also crazy is that in the era of COVID, early voting helped to lower density. And so, yeah, COVID isn't going to be around all the time, but people don't have, like, hours and hours on Election Day if 100 or 200 people show up at a precinct at the same time to stand in line to vote. If you can early vote, you can schedule it at a time of your convenience. You can vote in multiple places, unlike what you can do on Election Day. And so it doesn't make sense to take that away. And so despite all the histrionics that Republicans did this time around, Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not quite sure how popular this one is going to be, even with Republicans at this point, because people got used to the convenience of being able to mail in a ballot if they wanted to, or to be able to vote at a time that was most convenient for them, which wasn't necessarily on election day. But, but, but Sam, um, the Secretary of State would argue, uh, really, to Andra's point, 
that we now have what? Is it 16 days of early voting? I'm not sure I have that number exactly correct, but we do have a couple of plus weeks uh, for early voting. And Raffensperger is going to make the argument, or he has, uh, that with all that time for early voting, there's no reason that we have to have no excuse absentee balloting. What do you make of that argument, Sam? So I personally don't have any uh, qualms about early voting with no excuses. Uh, I do think that uh, we may want to consider some uh, options that would lessen the potential for fraud. Uh, but I've always been supportive of anything that makes it easier for people to vote. And there's a, a history of numerous states, predominantly out west, that have been doing mail-in voting only for years successfully. Uh, I do think these stories about voting for your mother or voting for your dead relative uh, requires a stiff punishment uh, if and when found guilty. But I, I continue to believe that the easier you make it for people to vote, uh, the better it is. Uh, I would note, Bill, that tomorrow Senate Judiciary has a hearing, at which point there is a proposal to once again call a ridiculous special session and once again uh, change the electoral votes in the state, which just totally defies common sense, logic, law, whatever other term you want to put with it. So go into that a little bit more, Sam. We're going to see tomorrow. I'm not, I didn't realize this, and, and I'm not sure how many of our listeners are. Tomorrow the, there's a legislative committee that's once again going to look at whether or not uh, Georgia's electoral vote should be cast for Joe Biden? Yeah, Senate Judiciary has a special called hearing tomorrow. In part, it will be a summary of the prior testimony. And I believe there will be a request once again to call a special session uh, and to uh, seek to take action before January 6th. And, uh, you know, if the same effort candidly were... Uh, utilized to get the two Republican senatorial candidates elected as they're spending all over the state to suppress votes, uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue would be in a much better place. Tamar, I, this is getting to a point of beyond lunacy. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that we're talking about the the January sixth electoral vote in call in uh, in Congress, you know, which normally you just kind of rubber stamp. It's so no drama that me as a congressional reporter who covered it for ten years, I never even covered it because it was so <laughs> um, whatever. You know, the the fact that we're getting to this point, it, you're right. It's exhausting and it shows kind of how uh, broken we sort of are at the moment in this country, and it's it's kind of a sad moment. Um, I, okay, I, uh, Sam, I want to come back to you just for a moment because it's happening in your county. Uh, we know that because we're now talking about our, elect, our process of holding elections, uh, voting by mail, whatever. Uh, you now have a vote, uh, a, a, an investigation underway in Cobb County, or your county does. GBI, election officials, all doing, going ballot by or envelope by envelope of absentee ballots looking to see if the signatures on those envelopes truly do match the registration signatures of those voters. Raffensperger 
Its office insists it's being done to prove the legitimacy of the election. But, of course, there are Republicans who are going to be hopeful that they will find some significant problems. And there's an enormous amount of state resources, Sam, being devoted to this right now. So it's, it's not 100 percent audit. It's a small microcosm of the total. But, but, but candidly, from an academic perspective uh, and from a uh, public perspective, uh, uh, I look forward to the results. It will be very interesting. It's my hope for the state of Georgia, let alone the secretary of state, that the audit shows that everything was very appropriate and proper and that it gives people a, a reason to, frankly, trust the uh, system. Um, so I hope that it does exactly what's intended, which is to uh, back up the state. All right. Well, we're going to watch how that unfolds. Um, let's turn now to uh, talking about the early vote, the absentee and early in-person voting. Um, Amelia Brock sent me a note pointing out that just yesterday alone, more than 156,000 people uh, voted in person And more than 37,000 absentee votes were accepted again just yesterday, which brings us up to a total of about 2.3 million Georgians who have already early voted. Um, And and Representative Beverly, in a minute, I want to try to break down those votes demographically. But um, the the appetite for uh, voting is still very high. People are very enthusiastic about this runoff election, Representative. Yeah, no, it's, this is great for democracy. I mean, I think that, you know, I've never seen this many people vote in a, in a, in a, in a uh, you know, a special, uh, on a runoff uh, as we have now. And the numbers are astounding. Um, to think that a third of the votes have come in already are people over 65 years old. That, that's amazing. The amount of people are voting. You know, you're talking about, what, 100 and some thousand people a day that are voting, 125, 130,000 people a day are voting. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I think it gives us a real barometer of where we are as a country to see how enthusiastic people are, whether you're for Democrats or Republicans or somewhere in between. It, I think it bodes well for who we are as a nation and certainly Georgia. And it gives us a mandate how we move forward uh, as we try to bring this country together. So I think it's, it's just great. It's fantastic. Andra, I want to go over some of the numbers that we're seeing in terms of the breakdown of who these voters are and ask you to just pick out some of it and and give us your impressions on what this means. So uh, we now know that about 55 percent of early voters are white, 32 percent are black. I believe that's a little bit higher than what we generally see in terms of the percentage of black votes out there. Um, women are voting about 10% higher than men. That's not unusual, and it certainly was happening in the November 3rd election. As Representative Beverly points out, the vast preponderance of the voters are over 65, although it's interesting to me that more than 100,000 voters are under 25, and and the, the, the young votes are are fairly significant so far in this race. All right, that said, what kind of conclusions can you draw, if any, from reading these tea leaves, Andra? So I'm going to be very careful about the conclusions that I draw for this, but the fact that African-American voters are punching above their weight in terms of, you know, right now they're making up 31.5% of people who have cast uh, ballots already versus, uh, you know, being 30 percent of the electorate is probably a good sign for, for the Democrats. And I'm sure the Ossoff and Warnock campaigns um, are, are looking at this in a favorable way. And Daniel Blackman's Public Service Commission as well. 
So that's and it's better than it was in the general election, which really is important to point out, um, was that actually black turnout as a proportion of the overall electorate actually lagged what their numbers could have been. So this suggests what's going on there. Um, I think the fact that we're seeing that, I think the fact that you're seeing younger people turn out at high rates, the fact that this election looks like it's being on track, that we're probably going to end up having like a, you know, somewhere close to 4 million votes cast if, if, like, the pace keeps up, which is astounding. Um, you know, I think it's also evidence of the fact that this is what happens when resources aren't an object. So we, uh, because of the fact that this is, the, you know, the half-billion-dollar Senate race, there is a lot of money on the ground. And, yeah, some of it's being wasted on really dumb ads um, and really troubling and misleading ads, but it's also being used to reach out and touch voters personally. So if you have gotten, you know, five text messages a day and you're getting multiple phone calls from people and you've had people show up at your door at 8 o'clock at night, um, you know, that is what is driving this turnout. That's always what's going to drive a turnout. And I hope the lesson that we take from this is making sure that we invest in the right types of activities to get everybody to participate in the process, regardless of who they're going to vote for. We're seeing evidence of what this looks like when resources aren't uh, a hindrance here in this particular race. Okay, but I've got to now ask you, I know tomorrow I'm going to get you in in a sec, but I, I think it's important to follow up, Andra. What do you mean by the correct resources? What, what You said some ads are dumb. I'm not sure which those are. Certainly there are some that are incredibly misleading and deceptive. And then you say we should use resources more appropriately to turn out the phone. Help us with that, and then we'll keep going. Um, I mean, you should be using resources to pay people to knock on doors, to send text messages, uh, to make phone calls, uh, to do all of those things that actually drive up turnout. Like, you know, the persuasion ads, especially the ones that are coming in from D.C., where they not only say stuff that's wrong, they also say stuff that's kind of toned up. So, like, I love the Raphael Warnock ad where it's standing next to Martin Luther King III, and you're going to call him a deep on the police radical. I'm like, seriously? Um, and, and, and the people who are involved in that ad, frankly, should know better. Um, so I'm not going to speak their name on TV, but, like, they're savvy enough to know better, like, that that's actually, like, toned up and, and wrong. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that, that persuasion thing is happening, but it's the GOTV that's going to win or lose this race. And because money isn't an object here, there's enough money to pay people to stay on the phones or to give them the pizza that they need to, you know, fuel their, their, their uh, you know, ability to be able to knock on doors. And we shouldn't forget that. Um, and we should try to figure out sort of how to keep this grassroots kind of excitement going and make sure that we continue to fund it. Tomorrow, I want to give you a last word before we take our first break. I mean, turnout is certainly higher than it's ever been for a runoff race in Georgia. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers, we have seen a slowdown since about January 23rd, or sorry, December 23rd, right before the Christmas holiday. And so there might be some peril there. We've talked about how this race comes in the middle of the holidays. People are meeting up with family. They want to tune out. It's very possible that people went to go do their holiday activities and they're going to go vote this week or next week. But also it's very possible people just lose focus. And, and start thinking about other things. And, and the campaigns are going to have to think about how to uh, re-engage people after they, they disconnected for the holidays. All right, let's uh, take our first break of the show, and we, come, we will come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Sam Olins, Representative James Beverly, Dr. Andre Gillespie, and Tamar Halderman with us on Political Rewind today. Um, Tamar, let's talk just a little bit about the position that Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are in, given that uh, at some point soon they are going to be asked uh, to uh, vote on the on an override of the president's veto of the Defense Authorization Act, which which of course he objected to in part because it includes language that will set up a commission to change the names of military bases that are named for Confederate officers. Uh, he also didn't like the fact that it uh, excluded uh, a, a clause that would allow for oversight of, uh, of uh, social media uh, platforms. Uh, he had all sorts of problems, but this bill also gives a raise to uh, personnel in the military, and it is a pro forma uh, measure that every time it comes up goes through without any concern. The House yesterday, many Republicans overrode, challenged the president. Some of the headlines said a weakened President Trump loses voters uh, on his side in the House. Now Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are going to be asked whether they too will uh, vote against the president on this at a time when they seem to need him more than ever. Tomorrow. Yeah, the defense authorization bill is is one of the only parts left of, of legislating on Capitol Hill that's not a complete partisan dumpster fire. It's the, the one bill that lawmakers are tripping over themselves every year to pass um, because you get to bring home the bacon. You get to show the troops that you support them. Usually there's, there's a pay raise. In this bill, it's about a 3% pay raise for the troops. You're funding all your military installations in your state, so you come back looking like a hero. Um, and the question for Leffler and Purdue is, is whether they're going to set aside all of that to stand next to the commander in chief, who obviously they've tied themselves so closely to, and whose voter or whose supporters they they absolutely cannot alienate ahead of these um, these runoff elections. And, um, so it's hard. And, I mean, David Perdue has carved out a niche for himself on Capitol Hill. He was on the committee that wrote the bill. He he leads a subcommittee on naval super, or, uh, you know, the Navy and shipbuilding. So is he really going to go against that work? Um, and it's hard, right? He, he can't, he cannot sideline Trump supporters, especially in, in North Georgia. And so what's he going to do? There's an argument to be made that maybe the best thing they can do is sit out and, and skip the vote. Um, but, but either way, there's no easy win for them here. I want to get everybody into this conversation, but I want to add one layer and, try, and take this to you first, Sam Olins, um, to show you the potential danger for a Leffler and Purdue. Just before we went on the air, uh, Trump tweeted, weak and tired Republican leadership will allow bad defense bill to pass. Um, and he goes on from there. Being, he, he says uh, it's um, giving money to uh, foreign lands who do nothing for us. It's a disgraceful act of cowardice and total submission by weak people to big te tech. Uh, Sam, this doesn't give uh, Leffler and Purdue much encouragement to try to override this veto. You know, the foreign aid money that he's referring to is the money that his administration requested and got. 
Yeah. It is over the line. Um, you know, they, like he talked about Egypt. Well, that's the same amount of money Egypt's gotten for years, and it was his Defense Department and State Department that sought that funding. So it, it's such a joke. You know, at the end of the day, it's a total guess what the two senators do. I wouldn't be surprised, however, if they both vote for the override and then vote for the increase to two thousand dollars, because that may play well with independent voters that are so necessary. Finally, with regard to Tamar's last comment about North Georgia and Trump voters, it's you know, frankly, it's it's pretty scary for the senators that the president's going to Dalton because the 14th district has not come out to vote so far in the runoff. So if that, that demonstrates that the many of the hardcore Trump voters are sitting this out so far based on all the talk about the election being rigged. So at the same time, we spent a good amount of time earlier during the show on voter suppression of African-Americans there's been a really good attempt so far on voter suppression of hardcore Republicans by Republicans. And it's going to create an awkward situation because if they end up supporting this bill, um, he could very well, the president could very well call them out on stage in front of these Trump faithful who they so desperately need. So there's so much peril for them here. And we saw some interesting divisions in, in the House vote yesterday in terms of how Georgia's Republicans ended up voting. We did see a few, uh, Barry Loudermilk and Rick Allen, who ended up voting for the original bill, but ended up voting no on the veto override because of Trump and mentioning, well, you know, we support our troops, but, but you know, Donald Trump is the commander in chief and he understands better than anyone the needs of our military. So maybe that's a roadmap for Purdue and Leffler uh, as they examine the Senate vote. You know, I, I understand the peril that you're outlining tomorrow, but like there isn't a choice here. Like, this is actually pretty easy. And I think people are twisting themselves in knots because they have no backbone. Um, you vote to override the president's veto because it doesn't make sense and because it's petty. Um, you vote to override the veto, especially for Senator Leffler. You attacked your opponent for being anti-military, and then you vote against the military authorization bill. Like, that's an ad waiting to write itself if you do it, because it makes you look hypocritical. For Senator Perdue, as you mentioned, who, you know, is in a position of leadership, committee leadership in terms of oversight, like, this doesn't make any sense for you to be able to do this. And what has been really disheartening to watch um, you know, I wouldn't actually characterize what's going on in the 14th district as being voter suppression. It's demobilization. And it's demobilization because Donald Trump doesn't care about anybody but himself. Um, and there are people who have sat and prostrate themselves. It was a shame to watch Senator Perdue prostrate himself before President Trump in ways that I would not expect a man of his network to do to basically anybody. Um, and to see him do that and perhaps maybe win, but also come up short. It's also a shame that in six years, he hasn't cultivated enough of a personal vote that he can get more than 100,000 extra votes than the president of the United States. That's the shame that's going on here. And so there has to come a point at which you're like, sorry, sir, we got to part ways on this. You're, you got two weeks left, you know, you have three weeks left in office, and it doesn't make sense for us to shortchange our troops at this particular point. You know, Andre, I couldn't agree with you more. And also, Sam, you said something that was, I think, extremely important about the 14th District. When we start talking about voter suppression, um, 
there's a chilling effect that you have when you talk about fraud. And that is, why should people in these districts give a darn about voting? And they're like, hey, look, just throw all these bums out. Now, I mean, I've seen this time and time again. When you start to think that you're doing something against one person, it always swings back the other way. And, again, it's unintended, unintended, uh, unintended consequences that are happening in that space. And, I, again, if Sam, if you were still around in the General Assembly of this area, I think you'd be a voice of reason. Thank God that, that you're on the, on, the, on the show because the reality is, is what they're doing is going to have, a, uh, as they say in my neighborhood, a clapback effect on the people who you didn't think were going to be involved. Now they're involved, and they're going to probably deal you at least once in it. You're going to lose next week as a result of the stuff that you're doing. All right. Uh, let's point out, by the way, that we have, even though the House uh, has already uh, <laughs> taken up the democratically controlled House, was more than happy to have the president argue we've got to have $2,000 instead of $600 uh, before he went ahead and signed the COVID relief bill anyway after threatening to veto that one. Uh, the House took him up on it yesterday. They passed a $2,000 allotment to most Americans with, with I think, about 44 Republican votes, not a lot, but but a pretty good number. The question now is whether Mitch McConnell even takes it up at all. And uh, that in itself could take Kelly Leffler and uh, David Perdue off the hook in terms of votes. It won't prevent reporters when they come and try to talk to them tomorrow from hoping to get something out of them on that $2,000 figure, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But Mitch McConnell is nothing if not a shrewd operator, and he's not going to want to do anything to put Leffler and Purdue in, in an awkward situation. He realizes that his future as Senate Majority Leader is tied to their future and getting reelected on January 5th, so he's going to do everything he can to shield them. Part of me wonders, and, and I haven't seen a date for when the Senate is going to take up the, the defense authorization veto override, but if I were Mitch, I would be holding back and delaying, delaying, delaying as much as possible, knowing the knots that they're going to have to tie themselves in with their uh, supporters. All right, let's do this. Let's get another break out of the way and come back with uh, more on Political Rewind. Anyone who is watching television these days and has seen uh, many, many, many uh, commercials, in fact, that's all there seem to be on the air, campaign ads, uh, have seen Ads which are hammering Raphael Warnock relentlessly, uh, accusing him of being anti-Israel. Um, it is a really uh, uh, harsh charge and one that has the ability to resonate, especially among Jewish voters in the state of Georgia. Uh, but it goes a little further than that if you extend it to comments that are being made on the campaign trail. Um, because the accusations about his being anti-Israel sort of bleed into, well, he is anti-Semitic as well. Um, I, I want to talk ab about this for a few minutes, and, and I want to start by uh, mentioning a column that, uh, our, that um, Professor Deborah Lipstadt, who is one of the country's leading authorities on anti-Semitism and a colleague of Andre Gillespie's at Emory University, wrote a column for The Standard, a Jewish uh, publication about all this, and, and I'm going to read just a tiny bit of it. She says, this all began with Leffler's charge that Warnock is not just anti-Israel, but a coddler of anti-Semites. 
Deborah says, I found this odd because I knew Warnock had close ties to the Jewish community in his capacity as the minister of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the same office that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had once held, and I myself have seen Warnock at APAC's National Policy Conference. That, of course, is the major uh, Jewish lobbying uh, group. But I also knew, she goes on, that after a 2018 visit to Israel and areas outside the Green Line, Reverend Warnock said some truly disturbing things. He was there when protesters from Gaza tried to storm the border fence and IDF, Israeli soldiers, shot some of them as they approached. This is the quote. We saw the government of Israel shoot down unarmed Palestinian sisters and brothers like birds of prey, Warnock said. Deborah goes on. How, I wondered, could someone who had said that show up at APAC to answer the question I read his policy paper on Israel in which he expressed unequivocal support for Israel for a strong U.S.-Israeli relationship, for a two-state solution, and more. And, and she goes on. Um, Sam Olins, let me, let me start with you. Um, we know that Raphael Warnock is one of the black ministers in, in Atlanta— who has had a long-standing relationship with rabbis across the area as well. The Black Jewish Coalition in Atlanta is one of the most celebrated uh, interreligious um, uh, movements that we've seen among uh, religions in this city. And this effort to tear it apart, I- I'm curious your f- feelings about it. So first of all, I've known Reverend Warnock for for numerous years uh, and have had a very good rapport with with the Reverend. I actually had uh, a local leadership group spend most of the day at Ebenezer Baptist Church with him several years ago, uh, where they they had a fantastic program for the group. Uh, I think his comments following the trip to 2018 were wrong. And uh, I make no effort to say otherwise than that. But I deeply um, uh, dismiss the attempt to make Judaism an issue in the race. Uh, Jews are about a little over 1% of the population in our state. Uh, They vote in high numbers, and they vote predominantly Democrat. So they maybe account for 4% or so of the the voters come election day. So I don't think they frankly make enough of a difference, but I find it, I find it trash to candidly turn uh, my religion into a political talking point by either party. Just it's only being done here by one, but I I disregard it. Um, You then have to look frankly at another vote that you didn't mention bill, which is the evangelic vote. Uh, much larger vote, much more uh, uh, of interest to Israel. But candidly, those voters are already voting Republican. Mm -hmm. So the larger block is really not going to be swayed by this effort because they're already voting for the two senators. Uh, But but it frankly causes a lot of concern for me. Uh, We are a religious minority. Uh, There is anti-Semitism. And Making that a vocal point of, uh, of an election campaign to me is uh, not only counterproductive, but frankly damaging to uh, 
efforts for Jews and African Americans to work hand in hand. Tamar, there, there's another uh, aspect of this that I think is worth exploring. There's several, but but one of them also is not only is this an effort to sort of drive a wedge between the relationships that blacks and Jews have made in this built in this community for decades now, um, but it also in some ways uh, sort of suggests that a way in which. Uh, the people who are lodging these attacks are trying to divide the Jewish community itself. We know that that how Israel treats the Palestinians is an issue of controversy within the Jewish community itself. There are liberal Jewish groups who are very unhappy with the Netanyahu government's treatment of Palestinians. There are conservative Jews who believe that Israel must protect itself against any kind of attack and threat. So this also uh, it does, in fact, uh, suggest a way in which you d try to divide Jews themselves. Exactly. And you've seen letters from, from different rabbis uh, around the, the Jewish community in Atlanta um, kind of trading letters back and forth about whether um, you know, Warnock is his stance on Israel is dangerous or not, but most of them have suggested no. You know, they, they're really rejecting these attacks. Some of them have talked about Kelly Leffler's embrace of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, of course, has talked a lot about QAnon and her, you know, uh, and their discussions about George Soros and Muslims and all sorts of terrible things. To me, what's a little bit frustrating over and over again as a Jew, as I just kind of <laughs> cover politics, is the frustration to me that that they all think. I don't know, the political poobahs think that we're one-issue voters, and that drives me up the wall. And I certainly have relatives, especially more religious relatives, who tend to be more conservative and very Republican-leaning, who, who do vote solely on Israel. That is their one issue. But to most of us, this is not our only concern, and it's really frustrated that we're being boiled down into that one issue, because it's so not true. Yeah, Tamar, I think that that's a, that's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that, that sort of disturbs me is just about the whole conversation is that you attack a man... Uh, on the very basis of what he stands for. And, you know, in the best of the tradition between blacks and Jews is this idea around liberation theology. And that is, you know, back in the day when people, when the world was all messed up, there was this Jewish philosopher I loved, his name was Moltmann. And he said, you know, what love is, it's the voluntary openness to the possibility of being affected by someone else. It is, I voluntarily open myself up to be affected by you is how I express how I love. And I think between Jews and blacks, and people who have been disaffected by, you know, folk who are coming at them with all kinds of reasons why we should be separated, the thing that holds us together is the thing that makes us strong, which they attack. And I think it's reprehensible that they would be doing this right now in this moment. And that is the fact that we're open to one another. We want to move forward. We want to make this country great. And we represent a minority group that's screaming from the mountains. Look, we're the canary in the coal mine. Hear what we have to say. We can make everyone better. Stop making us go against these artificial ways in which we uh, distinguish you from me when we're really trying to figure out what's best for humanity in general. And I think it's reprehensible so, that politics has gone to this level at this point. So, Andra, I want to add one more layer to this and get your take on all this. Um, yes, this effort to demonize Raphael Warnock in terms of his position on Israel and perhaps on his feelings about Jews uh, is one thing. But there's another element to this. By taking... Uh, sermons that Raphael Warnock has, has made in, in uh, um, Ebenezer Baptist over the years, out of context in some cases, um, th there has been an attack by Republicans essentially in some ways on the standing of Ebenezer Baptist Church itself. 
a historic and um, one of the most respected black churches in the country. Do you think I'm wrong about that, or do you think I'm right? Well, um, I think that there has been an attack on Raphael Warnock's Christianity. I don't know how much it affects Ebenezer Baptist Church per se, um, right, because you can't take away Ebenezer's historic importance in the 20th century freedom struggle in the United States. What I do see, and I agree with Sam Owens, that these ploys are targeting white evangelicals. So just in case anybody is wavering in their support because they don't like Donald Trump, what Kelly Loeffler and her allies are doing is constantly reminding people that uh, Raphael Warnock is not the kindly pastor that he portrays himself as. His theology is very different from yours. He doesn't follow the Bible in the same way that you do. You know, he uses the Lord's name in vain from the pulpit and supports other people who, who do. He supports Black Lives Matter, right? And, you know, there are allegations about Black Lives Matter being anti-Semitic. So this is where that tie comes in. He's pro-choice. He's pro-LGBTQ, right? He's all of these things that are an anathema to many white evangelicals. And so they're basically calling his faith into question and signaling that he's not a real Christian, so don't buy the preacher gambit because that's just a front. Um, and, you know, it is an important theological discussion if you have the tools to have that discussion. And I haven't seen any evidence in this political discourse that there's actually a reasonable political debate. And I say this as a conservative, like, evangelical. Like, I go to church with the Republicans, right? I've seen the church services since I watch online now where Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins have shown up in services before, right? Like, and that's not unusual for me um, to be able to see. But you're doing this in such a ham-handed and superficial and just disingenuous way that I have issue with that. So even though I disagree theologically with many things that Raphael Warnock says, I find this incredibly unfair. And I also think that it is not our place to be sitting there trying to say that the man isn't a real Christian. I want to piggyback off what Professor Gillespie said about evangelical voters. Biden won about 15% of them in Georgia on election day. That is not that high a number, but that's nine points higher than how well Clinton did with them in 2016. So that's a, a pretty big swing in Biden's direction, and Republicans need every single vote that they can get. So they need to energize that evangelical um, vote. Uh, and then one other thing, my, my colleague Jim Galloway wrote a great column about Leffler's attacks on, on Warnock and, and all the efforts that, that Johnny Isaacson made to build bridges with Ebenezer Baptists, especially over the years, and kind of the damage that might be done uh, to that relationship. Um, and I'd love to, to hear Sam talk a little bit about um, whether you think that can be salvaged and how important you think that is for the Republicans to have in the future. Sam, you, you got know, about a minute on that. One of my favorite days as attorney general was being the speaker representing the state of Georgia at the annual MLK service at Ebenezer. Um, what a great institution. What a great history. What a great sense of America. Um, I'm hopeful that, that the pain from this campaign goes away promptly due to all the foolishness, and we can't let the, the people making so many inappropriate comments now uh, damage that, that those relationships that are so vital to our country. Uh, Sam Olins, you get the uh, last word on what I think is a very, very important conversation um, as part of this 
way this election is unfolding. And I'm very grateful to all of you for talking so candidly about a tough, tough issue right now, and also for a really fine overall conversation throughout the past hour. James Beverly, uh, Tamar Hallerman, Andre Gillespie, Sam Olins, I'm really happy you were here with us today. Uh, We'll be back again tomorrow with another show. In the meantime, I ask that you take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and if you haven't yet voted, make a plan to do it. See you all tomorrow.